Thank you for listening to the Potter's House Tri-Cities Podcast, located here in Pasco, Washington, where lives are still being changed for Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoy it. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to um, Joshua chapter 10. We will be reading there in a moment, um, Joshua chapter 10. Um, John Wesley wrote the following letter uh, from his deathbed to a man named William Wilberforce. That's a cool last name, Wilberforce. Um, To encourage him in his prolonged fight to end slavery in England. So obviously this was a while ago and he wrote... um, Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England and the human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of the enemy and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? All all of them I'm sorry, are all of them stronger than God? Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. If you take on a task that God has not called you to, no matter how noble it may be, failure is waiting for you. But if you, but if God gives you a task, no matter how difficult it may seem, then God has victory waiting for you. Let's read our scripture, Joshua 10, 7 through 11. It says, Joshua went up from Gilgal, He went, I'm sorry, he and all the people of war went with him, and all of the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, after having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, and struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by way of the... um, by way of ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them from the Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us together this morning. God, I come before you, Lord, humble, Lord, that you would use the words I have, Lord, that you've prepared through me this morning, God, to touch the people in this place, God. I do not come by my talents or my abilities, but by the grace of God, in Jesus' name. So first, I want to start off with making the point that you can't bring real victory on your own. Only God can. There are perhaps worldly victories we can bring ourselves, um, they're often more fatal than our failures can be if we bring ourselves a false sense of success, a false sense of victory. Um, Things such as achieving, purchasing a house or a car or earning a degree or career or relationships or even ministry. These things aren't inherently bad. They aren't things that are wrong. However, if we aren't If we force our way into them outside of God's will, then we're in for some trouble. Um, Lecrae has a song from a little over 10 years ago. Um, It's called Background, and one of his lyrics reads, says, um, Because if I do this by myself, 
I'm scared that I'll succeed and no longer trust in you because I only trust in me. And see, that's how you ended up headed down to destruction, paving a road to nowhere, pour your life out for nothing. If we manage to create for ourselves the illusion of success without God, we will continue without God and only end up hurting ourselves, lost, empty, and pursuing nothing. So we can't create victory for ourselves, at least not real genuine victory, and you know it when you find it, trust me. <laughs> I've been on both sides of that coin. I've made things happen on my own. I've, I've pushed my own will into things, and you know what? I fell flat on my face. I've been through some things because of my own mistakes. But when you climb the hill in God's name, when you do these things in God's name, True victory comes, and you know it. So, for God to bring us victory, we can't just do nothing and wait for something to happen. Exodus 14, 14 says, The Lord will fight for you, and you only, and you have only to be silent. Now, this scripture um, is very commonly used very, very far out of context. Because it sounds like what he's saying is, The Lord's going to fight this battle for you. Just sit down and chill out. You'll be good. Um, but the reality is, if you read this scripture in context of what's going on in the book of Exodus right now, there's a lot more than just that going on. And I guarantee you, there was no couches to sit on. See, what's happening is Israel's fleeing Egypt. God had just freed them from the hands of Pharaoh, and they're running for their lives from Pharaoh right now because Pharaoh changes his mind, and he pursues them and wants to kill them all, right? Um, and they're, they're plugging along, and they come up against the sea, and they're cornered, and they're worried, and they're panicked. They think this is where they've come to die. They're starting to lose faith, which as you've seen, if you've read the story of Israel in the desert, they lose faith a lot, but God always puts them in their place. And that's a good thing that God does that for us. What God tells them, is, he says, just chill out. I got you. Just watch what I will do. Just have faith and watch what I'll do. That's where that scripture comes in. You only have to be silent. God will fight for you. And they go on to say, not one person of Pharaoh's army will survive. They didn't just sit there. They didn't just sit there and watch and see what God did. They didn't just sit there and say, okay, God, we'll, we'll sit down and play a little bit of Xbox. We'll check our Twitter, um, do all these things, and, and um, maybe go out to lunch later. And you got this, God, we're good. That's not what he said. He said, Moses, lift your hands. The sea will part. And what happens is they have to walk through the sea. By faith. They didn't just sit around. Yes, God moved. He moved big time. He parted the seas and they saw that and it's amazing. And God, of course, did the bulk of the work there because which one of us can do that? But they still had to take a leap of faith. They still had to walk through that sea, trusting that those walls would stand, that they would make it through safely. You talk about a leap of faith. That ain't just sitting and doing nothing, is it? Maybe you call it a walk of faith. See, there's plenty of debates about where exactly the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, or even if it was the Red Sea or a different body of water that existed at that time. But most historians say that that walk was anywhere from three to eight miles. See, in my mind, I always imagined it like the Columbia River or something. <laughs> Columbia River's that way. And, uh, and, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I can see the other side. They probably couldn't see the other side. They didn't know where that was going. They took that walk of faith. In God's name, and God moved. And what happens, you guys are all familiar with the story, they make it through on dry land, the waters crash down on top of Pharaoh and his army, and not a single Egyptian lived. 
That's not exactly cheering God on from the couch, is it? (laughs) God wants us to take action, and he will bring the victory. We take the action, and God brings the victory, because we can't do it on our own. Now, sometimes we pretend that we rely on God. We pretend that, you know, oh, God's got my back, and uh, he's going to help me through this, but we expect him to move in our ways. We expect him to take us the direction we want to go, And uh, that's no different than just waiting around for God to do something. In fact, sometimes it can maybe even end up worse. See, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, Israel is already in a a dire state. This wasn't too terribly long after they have made it to the promised land. At the time, they hadn't established any kings or anything. Prophets are are who would be considered the the ruler of Israel. And at this time, the, the leader of Israel is the prophet Eli. Eli was slowly turning his life away from God already. His sons, Phineas and Hophni, blasphemed God in the temple regularly, and he did not rebuke them. I'll tell you what, that's a good way to, to get on the wrong side of God. So Israel goes to battle against the Philistines. And the leader of Israel, Eli, is not right with God. It's very clear if you read this scripture. And they lose, and they lose bad. 4,000 Israelites died in that battle. Now, if you think you're going into a battle in the name of the Lord and you suffer a great loss, you need to step back and you need to think, maybe was God actually really there with me? Or was I trying to do my own thing and I thought God would follow me? But they didn't do that. You would hope that they would, but they didn't. They went back and what they did is they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into battle with them. And uh, Israel got excited. They got jazzed, right? The Ark of the Covenant's in battle with us. How can we lose? They're cheering. They're yelling so loud that the camp of the Philistines can hear them yelling. And the Philistines are like, what's going on? Something's crazy going on there. They start to get worried. They send somebody over to see what's going on. And they come back and they report they have a God in their camp. See, the Philistines, which is the world, they don't look at our God the same way. That's not God. That's the presence of God. That represents the presence of God. But they view the Ark of the Covenant as another idol, right? But they think they have a God in camp with them. We're doomed. We're going to lose. Because they've seen what this God has done for Israel so far. They, they know the stories. Everybody at this point in the world knows the stories of Israel and what they've accomplished in the desert leading up to this point. They think they're doomed. But what honorable warriors do is they fight anyway, right? So they go into battle. Philistines are scared. Israel is jazzed. They're, they're jacked up. They're ready to go. And you know what happens? Israel lost. And they lost, not only did they lose, they lost so badly that 30,000 men died. The ones that survived literally fled to their homes. They didn't flee back to the camp. They didn't flee back to, you know, the hillside. They ran all the way back home to Mama. And on top of that, Eli's sons, Phineas and Ferb, I mean Phineas and Hophni, they died. This is the prophet's sons. And worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. That's a big deal. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, 1 Samuel 5 and 6 goes on to explain what happens with the the Ark of the Covenant in in the captivity of the Philistines. And it's quite a remarkable story. God takes care of that problem all on his own. So if you haven't read it, I encourage you to check that out. But I'm not going to get into it this morning. So at this point, Where Israel was is they had a leader who wasn't honoring God, who was a wicked man, whose sons 
blasphemed God in the temple. They were not living in the will of God. Yet they assumed that if they went to battle in the name of the Lord, they would claim victory. And we just talked about that, right? What happens is you go in the, you go to battle in the name of the Lord, but the Lord isn't with you. Then you're going to battle in the name of Jerry. Or in the name of Bianca. Or in the name of Adriana. That's what happens. And when you go into the battle in the name of yourself, no matter who you call it, you're set up for defeat. Now when they lost, instead of realizing that they were tripping... They took it even a step further and they tried to convince God to fight with them by taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. And what happened is God was um, not going to have it. He, he, um, they acted as if they were God's and God was their weapon. And because of this, God was willing to allow his Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, to fall into captivity in order to not allow that to appear to be true. Sometimes in life, we tend to make God our tool for victory. And it sounds cool, you know, in the moment off the cuff, somebody says, like, God's our tool for victory. But let me tell you this, when God becomes our tool for victory, we become a spectacle of defeat. How can a hammer wield the carpenter? The truth is, we find our victory when we recognize ourselves as tools in the hands of a master builder with a brilliant plan. I know a guy, um, I work with him, and he oftentimes says this phrase, and it always makes me cringe, but I never say anything, because I, I, he doesn't really mean anything by it. What he says is, he says, we make our plans, and God is in the details. That's a dangerous mentality, let me tell you. In reality, it should be, God makes his plans, and we are blessed enough to be in his details. God makes the plans, and we follow along if we decide. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings or maybe lean not on your own planning. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Oftentimes we lean on our own understanding for what we want done, what we trust, trust in the Lord to give us victory in these things and make our path straight. But truly, to truly trust in the Lord, we must allow him to write our story, to guide our path, to bring us victory according to, to his will. We don't say, hey, God, here's our plans. Let's do this. No, God says, here's my plans. Are you coming? And let me tell you, you come along with God's plans, and it'll end up better than you've ever imagined. So if we want God to bring us to victory, we have to know what this path of victory looks like. So what is our path to victory? Well, first, I think it starts with knowing your enemy. Who is our enemy? Um, I don't know if any of you guys like UFC fighting. I love it. I watch as many UFC fights as I can because I just really enjoy it. But um, what they do is, is they have an opponent, and they know who their opponent is generally months before the fight. And they go into what they call a camp. And they go into this camp, and they're exercising, they're working out, they're training, they're practicing their skills. And they're studying their opponent. They know who they're going to fight. They know their techniques. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. And a good fighter is preparing for that fighter the whole time. Now let me tell you, if they're preparing for the wrong opponent, they're going to lose. If you're preparing to fight somebody and that person doesn't show up in the ring, you're going to be tapping out in about 30 seconds. 
but meticulous preparation for the correct opponent and the proper coaching and skill training brings victory. So who is our enemy? Now, when I say that question, maybe a handful of people pop to your mind or, or certain organizations or this, that, or the other thing, but we have the answer in our scriptures, as we always do. We always have our answers in the scriptures, guys. And if you can't find it, you're not looking hard enough. <laughs> Ephesians 6, 12 through 13 is where we find our answer, and it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Our enemy isn't flesh and blood. It's not your unsaved friends or your family or co-workers or the government, as hard as that might be to believe right now. But our enemy is the rulers, authorities, and powers of this present darkness. In other words, the devil and his army. Now, our enemy might have control over these people I've mentioned before. They might have influence in these people's lives, but ultimately when it comes down to it, we're not fighting these people. We're fighting the rulers that are oppressing these people. We are fighting to release these people from these powers. Now, if you stop reading right there, which I, you shouldn't, you're going to be a little nervous. You're going to think, dang, that's, how am I supposed to stand up against that? But thankfully, it goes on, and it gives us tips and, and structure and coaching on how to fight this enemy. Ephesians 6, 14 through 17 continues on and says, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and have the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole armor of God um, for one, because of time, and two, because Pastor Harvey recently did a whole series on it. So if you don't feel like you're very familiar with the armor of God, look those up. They're on our YouTube, all that good stuff. Um, but put on your armor. Read this, study it, and then practice with it. Now, if you have weapons, if you have armor, and you're not, you don't know how to use it, then when the battle comes, you're in for some trouble. Put on your armor. Pick up your sword. That's the, that's the word, right? The Bible. And practice with it. Be ready with it. Study it. Get to know it. When you put it on, it should feel normal, right? Now, Ephesians 6, 18 through 19, it continues on more, and it says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, and be alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, and proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now we get a couple more tips here. Pray continually in the spirit. Prayer life is important for being ready for the enemy. If you're not praying, then you're not getting ready. And you won't be ready. And it says, be alert with perseverance. Have, I'm sorry, it says be alert with perseverance. Have your armor on. Be ready. Be alert. Let me tell you what, if your armor is locked up in the safe and your sword is tucked behind it and, and it's in the other room, you ain't ready. I'm talking have your armor on. You live. This is armor that you live in. 
Now, you can put on, you can imagine a knight, you know, knight in shining armor or whatever, and they go to bed in their armor, and they ain't going to sleep very good. But I'll tell you what, you live in this armor 24-7, you're going to sleep like a baby. Because this armor not only brings comfort to your soul, but it brings comfort to all of you. And also, it's not literal, literal armor, so that helps. And make supplication for all the saints. In other words, pray some more and pray for other people. Intercessory prayer, which means praying for other people, is such a powerful thing. I've seen God move in my life when I'm not praying for something of myself, and I find out that other people were praying for me in that way. And I've seen God move in other people's lives from other people praying for that person. When it comes down to it, we should be praying constantly. We should be reading our Bible constantly and wearing our armor constantly, always ready to take a stand. We don't stand a chance against this enemy on our own. We just don't. And, and you can see it in the world. You look around and you see people that obviously don't know anything about this armor or even the Word of God or their prayer life and all these things. You see so many lost people and they're losing. They're oppressed by the enemy. And they don't know it. We know it. Prepare. Gear up. Let's fight. We need God's help. And God's help is the only help we need. Psalms 46.1 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. That's a promise. That's not, a, that's not for certain people. That's not for you and not you. That's for everybody. That's a promise that we can grab onto. God is our help in times of trouble. Proper use of the armor of God in prayer are the keys to victory against this enemy who we've identified. So the next part in our path to victory is knowing God's instruction. So we've got our armor, we've got our, um, we know who our enemy is, we've got our armor on, so, uh, you know, what do we do next? Because we talked about earlier, you don't just sit around. We're not just sitting around, we're supposed to be a mobile army, right? But let me tell you this, it comes very naturally at that point. When you're equipped with the armor of God, when you're in constant prayer, when you have the Holy Spirit, when, you, when you're reading your Bible, God's instruction comes naturally. The Holy Spirit will guide you and will minister you. There's a quote, um, didn't say who it was by, it says, um, When faced with a mountain, I will not quit. I will keep on striving until I climb over, find a pass through, tunnel underneath, or simply stay and turn the mountain into a gold mine with God's help. See, oftentimes when we're trying to do things on our own, we come up on a mountain and the only thing we think is, well, we got to get up and over it. And then so we say, okay, let's go, God. And then God stopped. He's, he's waiting behind. He's like, that's not, that's not what I have planned. That's not what I see for that mountain. Because as this quote says, you go over the mountain and that's the typical reaction to mountains, right? And he says, or maybe we'll pass through it, find a tunnel or go underneath it. Or maybe God wants me to stay here and he wants me to turn this mountain into gold. That's what God can do. Psalms 32, 8 through 10 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which God, uh, I'm sorry, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will, th or it will not stay near you. It being God's instruction. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
God promises to counsel us and to lead us and to give us guidance. But then he goes on to say, if you're stubborn, if you're trying to push your own way like a, like a horse, he's comparing people who don't listen to horses. I think we're all humans here. If you're stubborn, you're trying to force your own way against God, you're going to find yourself in the path of the wicked, which only leads to wickedness and sorrows. But if we allow God to lead us, if we allow God to instruct us on our path, he will show us where to go. So the last part of our path to victory is following God's instructions. Okay, so we have our armor on. We're reading our Bible. We're praying. Uh, we now know what God's calling us to do in theory, right? So now we just got to do it. And that sounds so much simpler than it really is, if any of you guys have been up against a tough decision in the name of the Lord. It's easier said than done. But God gives us free wills to follow his plans for our lives. I've seen God's plans for my lives, and I've stepped in it, and I've taken it, and I've uh, seen God's plans for my lives, and I've kind of shied away from it and gone other directions. God lets us choose. He's not going to force us to walk in his will. He's not going to force us to do what he wants us to do with that mountain. If we want to climb over it, even though he said to go under it, guess what? He's going to let us, and we're going to fall to our own demise. But if we're doing everything that we talked about, if we're ready for battle against the enemy that we now know, then we're ready to defeat that enemy with the guidance from God, and we're on the right track. Jeremiah 29.11, a very well-known scripture, says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It just comes down to making the decision to carry out what his plans for your future are no matter what the cost is. Dwight D. Eisenhower, when he was a general, he said, there are no victories at discount cost. Sometimes following God's will and his plan for our life, it may cost us relationships or careers or lifestyles or even our lives. But the eternal gain far outweighs the costs. There's nothing we can lose on this earth by following God's will that is worth it to hang on to and be outside of God's will because we are looking for something much greater than anything we can find on this earth and that is eternity in heaven. Which leads me to my last point in which all of these things that we've talked about, this enemy that we're fighting and these people that we're trying to free from this enemy and preparing ourselves for all these things, these are battles. These are battles in our lives and they're not easy. But the truth is there's a much these are battles that are part of much larger war. The ultimate war needs to be fought with the ultimate victor. <clears throat> our ultimate battle is one that is crucial to our lives and the lives around us, even, um, even more so to our souls. If we lose this battle or this war, we're dead in our sins and we spend eternity in hell. That's just the truth. But if we win, we win the ultimate reward. See, this war is the war with sin. And if we try to fight this battle on our own, we lose horribly. We lose bad. But this fight, it's not a fight to our death, but rather it's a fight until our death. It's a fight that we can be winning at one moment and losing in another, but there's still a chance to get back in that fight. And then when we die, at that point, we've either lost 
or we've won. If we fight alone, we lose. But if we allow Jesus to fight this battle for us, he will lead us to a resounding victory. 1 Peter 1.9 says the reward for trusting in him will be the salvation of your souls. Jesus fought this battle once, and he had a flawless victory. He lived a perfect life free of sin. And the best part about it is he did it for us. He didn't do it just to say, ha ha, neener, neener, I did it, you can't. And then go back into heaven and then watch us all fail. He did it so that we could take part in what he has, in his presence in heaven. He did it so that we didn't have to. Because tell you what, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what did Jesus do for us? Well, he was God, hanging out in heaven. Pretty comfy life, right? We're all looking forward to that. He clothed himself in flesh, just like us weaklings. He gave up his heavenly power, and he came down to earth in the form of a man, and he lived a perfect life for us. And on top of that, not only did he just live a perfect life, and I don't mean like perfect life like, oh, he got good grades in school, he went to college, got a great job, had a wife, a car, and all these things, and retired early. And that's the perfect life to some people. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus did not sin. He lived a life of a servant. He served the people around him. He served his disciples. And he came against the enemy that we talked about. And he fought hard. And the enemy fought hard too. The enemy is not going to give up on us, guys. Just like Jesus. And the enemy killed him. And they thought they won. They crucified him on the cross. They could not find any sin in him, but they got the public to hate him enough to hang him on the cross. But the beautiful part is, is that was God's plan all along. He hung on that cross and bore our sins for us. And then three days later, the victory came. He rose from the grave, conquered death, and we just have to accept it. Live our life for him. Can I have every head bowed and every eyes closed? You've just listened to the Potter's House Tri-Cities Podcast located here in Pasco, Washington. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you come back for more.